Well, please turn with me in our Bibles uh, this morning uh, to the Gospel of Mark, and we are turning to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, on page 844, and we'll be uh, beginning at verse 2 and reading down to verse 13. This is God's word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. A pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry came in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus, uh, after training and leading his disciples for a period of time, uh, posed that important question to them, who do you say that I am? Uh, it is a question that his disciples have to answer, but it's also a, a question that every one of us has to answer as well. Who do we say that Jesus is? And you remember that Peter answered that question very concisely. He said, you are the Christ. And when Peter said that, he was saying that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one anointed by God to bring all the promised blessings, the age of God's blessings, to de deliver his people uh, from their enemies, to rescue them from their sins. And so everything that the Old Testament was pointing forward to in a promised Savior is wrapped up in that language of the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And Peter identified Jesus as that promised Savior. But as much as Peter rightly identified Jesus as the Savior that was to come, Peter was still unclear in terms of the path of that Savior. He was still uh, um, vague in terms of his understanding of what Jesus was going to do to bring about that blessing and to deliver his people from their enemies. That's why Peter uh, rebuked Jesus when Jesus started talking about suffering and dying and then rising on the third day. Uh, Peter actually went to Jesus and said, No, Lord. 
he was challenging and confronting Jesus about what Jesus was des- describing. And so Peter himself didn't have a very clear understanding of what Jesus' path entailed. But Jesus was going to bring greater and greater understanding uh, of his work and of who he is. And you remember that Jesus had said uh, that it wouldn't be very long until they would see the kingdom of God come with power. Uh, And so uh, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples something about the kingdom of God and of his work as the promised king. How is it that God's work would be accomplished? Well, this morning we want to see how Jesus begins to unveil or reveal his glory in a greater way to his disciples so that they would not just identify Jesus as the Christ, but that they would begin, begin to understand more and more of what that means in terms of who he is and what he does. And so this morning we want to see that because of who Jesus is, we are to listen to him. And we want to think about these verses in terms of the transformation of Jesus and uh, the treatment of Jesus. Well, first we want to look at the transformation or what we oftentimes call the transfiguration. Uh, Now you young people, uh, you learn in school uh, a very important word, a concept called metamorphosis. Uh, And we learn in school, we learn in nature, uh, this abrupt, sudden change that happens in the development of creatures like the caterpillar. The caterpillar at one moment is a caterpillar. Uh, And then after being in the cocoon, it, it has a sudden change in its appearance. It is now a butterfly. It, its appearance has changed. And here in Mark's gospel, that same word that we use in English for metamorphosis, uh, a change in appearance, is being used here to describe a change in the appearance of Jesus. It, it is meant to show us something about who Jesus is. And so there in verse 2 it says, After six days... Jesus took with him uh, three of his disciples. He took Peter, James, and John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So he brings them up on this mountain, and in Luke's gospel, we're told that he brought them up to pray. But while they're up on this mountain, uh, he is changed before them. And we're told what that change is. His appearance in terms of his clothes became radiant intensely white, white as snow, uh, and whiter than any uh, uh, refiner could clean them. Uh, This was cleaner than any earthly means or brighter than any earthly uh, 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 means. Uh, But uh, it is highlighting to us something of who Jesus is. The color white in scripture is meant to describe to us the radiance of light uh, or the glory of God. That's what we were highlighting in singing Psalm 104. As it tries to capture the greatness of God, the psalmist says, O Lord, my God, you are, so, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor, covering yourself with light as with a garment. And so here in uh, this encounter with Jesus on the mountain, Jesus' appearance becomes like light. His clothes are as bright as lightness itself, beyond anything that could be compared with it. And it's not just a fancy trick that is happening here. It is meant to reveal something about Jesus. 
It's, it's a pulling back of the curtains and showing us something of who Jesus is. Now, you may remember in the Old Testament scriptures an, an encounter that Moses himself had. You may remember that in the Old Testament, Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God. And he came down from that mountain with the stone tablets, uh, with God's commandments written on those tablets. And you may remember that when Moses came down from the mountain, that his face shone. But you will know that in the Old Testament, it's very careful to highlight that Moses' face shone, not because of anything in Moses, but because it says, because he was talking with God. He had met with God. And that communion with God had left a reflective effect on Moses. His face shone. And so there was a temporary or a fading glory that Moses had when he came down from the glory. It was communicating what had happened there on the mountain, that Moses came down with God's word, that the authority that Moses was giving in the law was something that derived from his encounter with the living God. But some people might look at this event that Jesus has here with his disciples and wonder, well, is it not just the same thing? Maybe Jesus was up on the mountain meeting with God, and likewise, he is simply reflecting the glory of that intimacy with his God. But you'll notice that that doesn't make sense of the thrust of the passage. Because whereas in Deuteronomy, or whereas in uh, Moses' experience, it was uh, the fact that he was encountering God and God's revelation. The attention was being directed at God who had met with Moses. Here, the attention, the focus is on Jesus himself. And secondly, it doesn't make sense in terms of the thrust of what the apostles themselves testify. Because these same apostles, Peter and John, will later say things like, we have seen his glory. Glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John didn't think this was simply a reflection of Jesus being close with God the Father. John was saying, we saw something of Jesus in terms of his identity. That's what Peter himself would say. We are witnesses of his majesty. And the writer of Hebrews would say something very similar. He would say he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. What is happening here on this mountain is not simply Jesus being close with the Father, but rather what is happening here on the mountain is the curtains being pulled back and we're beginning to see something of who this Christ is. That he is fully man, yes, but more than that, he is the glory, the radiance of the glory of God. And that is being communicated with that visual of light. Just as God is a God who is great in his splendor and majesty, who has wrapped himself in light as with a garment, Jesus shows us who he is by having his clothes become white, identifying himself as the God who is. And that is key for understanding something of the identity of Jesus. He's revealing to us then the brightness of the glory of God in himself. But we're told that when this is happening, that Elijah and Moses uh, also appear. Elijah and Moses were some of the prophets of the Old Covenant period. 
Uh, they were important in the Old Testament because they pointed forward uh, to the age to come. Uh, they did that in different ways, but they were pointing forward to the Christ. They were pointing forward to the Messiah. Moses, as we read there in Deuteronomy 18, uh, spoke about a latter-day prophet. There would come another Moses, another prophet, and he would speak God's word. And it says that people will be held accountable for what they do with that prophet's testimony. He will bring God's word to them, and people will be judged for what they do with that prophetic word. Moses was talking about Jesus. He was talking about what God would reveal through his son. And so as Moses pointed forward, he was pointing forward to an age in which God's revelation would be made clear through another prophet, another mediator, through the Christ. But Elijah was also important because Elijah also pointed forward to the age to come. At the end of Malachi's uh, prophecy, Malachi speaks about before the day of the Lord comes, Elijah will come. Elijah would come and he would prepare the people. He would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers. That he would do a work of restoration. And that uh, it highlights that in, in Malachi. And should he fail, the Lord would bring an utter destruction upon the people. And so both of these men were pointing forward to an age to come, uh, the age of the Messiah. And we're told uh, that they're both here. But we should pause just for a second and think about what is being highlighted here. They're on a mountain and they see Moses and Elijah. These men lived a long time ago. Elijah was taken and was no more. Moses died, but they don't know where he was buried. But now they are present. Highlighting to us something of the fact that of God's life-giving power and of the hope of life after death, of the hope of resurrection. And so simply their presence here is a sign of the power of God. And of the fact that although their earthly pilgrimage has ended, they're alive. They live in the spirit. And it's a testimony pointing forward uh, even to the resurrection life itself. But here are these two individuals and we're told that they are talking with Jesus. Again, in Luke's gospel, it tells us what they're talking about. They're talking about Jesus's departure. Uh, they're talking about his exodus. They're talking about his deliverance. They're talking about what he would accomplish through his work. And so while these uh, other men are with Jesus, as they are speaking with Jesus, the focus is just like their ministry. They're still talking about what the Messiah will do. They're talking about the deliverance that he will bring. And so uh, their, their attention is directed at him. But notice in verse 5, Peter himself is taken up with this whole thing. And he says in verse 5, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Peter said this because he didn't know what else to say. Uh, maybe we can resonate with Peter in our own experience. Uh, there are times when our words come bumbling out faster than we're able to think through them. 
uh, and sometimes we may put our foot in our mouth as a result uh, because we don't know what to say in the situation. We just say something. That was Peter, uh, and sometimes that is us. Uh, but not knowing what else to say, he wanted to commemorate uh, this event. Here are these prophetic witnesses that have appeared. Here is something that is commemorating uh, the glory of Jesus. We should, we should have three tents uh, to highlight the three witnesses. And it tells us that he said this because they were all terrified, not knowing what else to say. What was wrong with what Peter was suggesting? What was wrong with what Peter was suggesting is, is that he was implying that the glory of Jesus is of an equal standing with Moses and Elijah. That, that Jesus deserves the same kind of glory that Moses and Elijah deserve. That Jesus is a, a great man that deserves to be commemorated, but he's part of a great company that should be commemorated. And really that's diminishing, that's retracting from the glory of Christ. And so it's when Peter suggests this that we're told that a cloud enveloped them. And a voice from that cloud, the father speaks, saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And when they look around, they see nothing but Jesus standing before them. That while Moses and Elijah had important ministries, their ministries were subservient. They were pointing beyond themselves. They were pointing to the Messiah to come. Notice the voice doesn't say, these are my beloved sons. There is a preeminence that is given to the Lord Jesus, that he is to be given glory above all else, even against the mediator of the old covenant, even against someone as holy and godly as Elijah. They are not of equal standing with Jesus. And so here in this encounter, we're told that uh, Christ's preeminence is uh, highlighted. He is uh, to be given glory because of who he is. He is uh, the glory of uh, the radiance of the glory of God because he is both man, but also he's revealing something of his deity here. He is light wrapped in garments. Uh, he is the God-man who has come uh, to save sinners. And he is therefore to be given preeminence. We may sit here this morning thinking we have a very high view of Jesus, that we think that he should be given honor and glory. We, high, we, we think highly of his teachings, of the standards that he holds, of how we should live our lives. But if that is as far as we go, if we just think of Jesus as one in a great host uh, or a great company of great people, then we're actually diminishing his glory. Jesus is not just one of many. He is to be given glory above all else because he is fully God and fully man. And it's only when we understand who Jesus is as the beloved son that we're going to receive that instruction, listen to him with any justification. Otherwise, it's just his opinion. Otherwise, it's just what he thinks. But when we know that he is who he claims to be, then his word is binding. It has authority. He is the word of God incarnate. He is the greatness of God who has come in the flesh. And therefore we are to listen to him. 
This is what the transfiguration is showing us. It's showing us who Jesus is. The brightness of the glory of God in the flesh. But then we're also told something about the treatment of Jesus. After these things, in verse 9, it says, As they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Jesus is uh, still aware of the misconceptions that abound about the Messiah. He knows that many people still have a political deliverance in mind, someone that's going to deliver them from the Roman authorities. And so Jesus is preemptively uh, avoiding that misconstrual by telling them not to say anything until he rises from the dead. His disciples are still confused about what that entails. What does he mean about arising from the dead? But all of this talk uh, about uh, um, Christ and uh, his glory causes them uh, to think of another question. Uh, While they were still uh, questioning in their hearts what all this means, in verse 11 it says, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They had just seen Elijah. And Jesus had just spoken about the kingdom of God coming shortly. That it wouldn't be long before the kingdom of God would come in power. And the scriptures do teach that Elijah will come before the day of the Lord. And what happened is is the religious teachers, as they were studying the scriptures, they came to the conclusion that when it says Elijah will come before the day of the Lord, that means that he will come as a forerunner for the Messiah. He will come in anticipation of the Christ, which becomes almost a source of objection in the first century. That's why there's so much talk about Elijah. John, are you Elijah? People are questioning about uh, who is Elijah. Some were thinking that Jesus was Elijah. There was a lot of excitement about Elijah because Elijah has to come before the age of the Messiah begins. And so here they're simply asking the question. The scribes talk about this being important. Why is it that they're saying Elijah must come? And how can the, the age of the Messiah have come If Elijah's not here, we just saw him, but now he's left. Shouldn't he come? Why does it say this? Why do our teachers tell us that Elijah must come first? And notice in Jesus' answer, two things. He tells them first the necessity of Elijah's coming, but also the prelude that comes in Elijah's coming. There's first the necessity that he says. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. That's his role. He was to come to turn the hearts of the fathers and the hearts of the children. That he was to bring the people back to God. He was to do a work of preparation. That was something that was necessary. But Jesus says, uh, and as scripture says, that if uh, otherwise the Lord would strike the land with destruction. But Jesus here explains that Elijah has already come. He's already come and they've done to him what they wanted to do. They treated him as they liked, meaning they killed him. He's talking here about John the Baptist. That John the Baptist is the Elijah that we were to wait for. Not that he was Elijah reincarnate, but that he fulfilled the work of an Elijah. What was the Elijah to do? He was to be three things. He was to be a forerunner of the Christ. He has to come before He was to be one who prepared the people 
He has to restore all things. He's to call the people back to God. He is to call them to repentance. And then he is to consecrate the Christ. He is to anticipate the Savior that is to come, the Messiah, by setting him apart. That's what John the Baptist does. He comes before Jesus. He calls the people to repentance because the day of the Lord is coming. And he consecrates the Christ at the Jordan River when he baptizes him to begin his public ministry. John the Baptist is fulfilling the work of an Elijah as he brings attention to the work of God. He, he anticipates, he fulfills the work of an Elijah as well because like a Elijah of old, John the Baptist contended with the royal courts, didn't he? Just like Elijah contended with Ahab and Jezebel, John the Baptist contended with Herodias and Antipas. But the difference was is that John the Baptist ultimately died for it. His boldness ultimately led to his own execution. But notice how Jesus then marries the idea of what Elijah, what John the Baptist has come to do and what will happen to the Son of Man. He goes, he moves from talking about Elijah to then saying, uh, Elijah does come first. And how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things? What will happen to the Elijah is a prelude. It's anticipating what will come against the Son of Man. They did to John the Baptist what they wanted. They killed him. And Jesus here is expressing that in the same way they will do to him what they want. They will kill him as well. So Jesus here is unveiling something of his own understanding again. That his own path is a path of suffering. That he himself will be rejected. He will be held with contempt and he will suffer. Just as it says in Isaiah 53. He would ultimately be crucified. But what the transfiguration is doing is it's wetting our understanding of Jesus' crucifixion with his identity. So that when we think about the cross, we don't just think about the death, but we're thinking about the one who's dying. We're thinking about who it is that is hanging there on the cross. It is the radiance of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is, it is God incarnate that comes to save sinners. And so the transfiguration is helping us understand his glory, both in terms of who he is, but what he does for sinners by coming to save them from their sins. At the transfiguration, Jesus' clothes were radiant. They were bright and white. At the cross, he's stripped naked, and he's humiliated and exposed before his enemies. At the transfiguration, he is surrounded by heavenly witnesses. At the cross, he's surrounded by mockers and hung between two thieves. At the transfiguration, Jesus is declared to be the glory of God. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. At the cross, Jesus is treated like the object of God's wrath and held in isolation. There is this contrast that is emerging, but it is highlighting to us, this is the one who has died. That his glory is found in his person, but his glory is also found in what he does for sinners. And that it's by seeing who Jesus is 
that we treasure him as a savior for our sins because we have all fallen short and we all stand in need of God's redemption. And what God has done is something beyond our wildest imaginations. And it's something that would have to be revealed to us before we would believe it. Peter and John said, we have seen his glory, the glory of uh, the only begotten of the Father. And it shaped their lives. But we weren't there. We weren't on the mountain. We didn't see the transfiguration. So how is it that we are to live in response to this? The Apostle Peter answers that question in his letter. He says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And when, we received, uh, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. Peter and James and John saw Elijah. They saw Moses. They heard him talking about Jesus' departure. But we have the scriptures. We have Elijah. We have Moses. We have David. We have Ezekiel. We have Jeremiah. We have Daniel. We have the prophetic testimony. And when we listen to God's word, we are listening to Christ. And as we believe in what God has revealed to us about Jesus, then we can know God's glory in Christ. And we can know the grace of God for our sins. We can be pardoned of our own sins. We can be washed. And as Psalm 51 was celebrating, we will be made whiter than snow. We will be pure, even as our God is pure. Only then will we be holy as God is holy. Only then can we rest in God's work and celebrate in God's greatness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think over your word and as we think of the testimony of both the Old Testament scriptures, but also of the New Testament scriptures, we pray that we would have ears to hear, to listen to Christ, that we would have eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus and that we would understand his glory both in terms of his person, but also in terms of what he would achieve through his death. So, Lord, we ask that you would go before us and bless us for doing